Tim, and I'm joined in the virtual pub by my drinking buddy, Illyri. And this is part two of our devilish double on fire and brimstone. Two weeks ago, we took a short toilet break. Um, well, two <laughs> weeks for you. Not not necessarily for us. I don't know. Speak how, for yourself. How, how was yours, Illyri? <laughs> I'm, I've not stopped. I'm, I've had to just accept it and sit here. <laughs> you, you didn't plug... <laughs> 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 it was too much. I couldn't get it out. Um, not my toilet time. That joke. Um, I was just going to say, did you clog the shitter again? That was all. Not again. <laughs> Good to know. Because she did once, folks. <laughs> it was mighty. Anyway, um, are you drinking anything different? I am, actually. What you and got? I'm drinking something that you talked about in the last episode. Oh. Unfortunately, it's was... not a hellfire punch because that is still top of my wish list. And contrary to popular belief, I've only just been downstairs and it back up. <laughs> right. <laughs> it hasn't actually been two weeks. It's been about two minutes. Sure. <laughs> uh, I've got a glass of Camden Hells. Oh, well, I'm glad I didn't pick that out for the first episode then because we've given you variety. Yes. Very nice. Good choice. Mm. Good choice. I um, have actually just pulled myself um, a tot of something I've had before on the podcast, more than once, actually, I think. But it's just always so relevant. I can't help it. It's there. And I, you know, it becomes relevant <laughs> for the episode. So I'm drinking Black Fire, which is uh, coffee, tequila and chili liqueur. It's very tasty. Mm. But I was like, come on, this is the fire part of Fire and Brimstone. I've got to yeah. drink some Black Fire. I like it actually because you had a beer for the last episode and I had a little chilly twist in uh, a drink. So we've kind of switched places. We have swapped. We have swapped. Mm. Well done us. Mm. Um, so I want to start with a quick reminder of something from our Three Sheets to the Wind episode, which was about gunpowder proof. So that was the alcohol proof test that is commonly agreed to have consisted of mixing an alcoholic spirit with gunpowder and then attempting to ignite it. I think we gave mm-hmm. it in the context of rum. So if the water content of the spirit is too high, then the gunpowder um, gets left as being too damp to combust once the alcohol fumes, fumes have burnt off. So it's not the most scientific of tests because that can depend on so many external factors like temperature, the ratio of gunpowder to liquid or the time that's waited after soaking before igniting um, that could affect the results. Maybe the intent of the test was to make more of a show of it than anything, but we do know that that's where it comes from, proof, um, gunpowder proof. So I thought that would be a good gunpowder plot bonfire night reminder to kick things off with. Um, as we both had chilli drinks, I thought I would look at a quick example of a chilli drink that I intend never to try. 
and that is a chili vodka from the Hot Enough Vodka Company. Now, I'm just going to tell you, almost everything I'm going to say next is directly coming from the Masters of Malts uh, website that okay. they sell this yeah. through and they have user reviews um, and things like that. But I couldn't say anything better about it than people who had tried it. So I have to deliver this to you. So the first description is, they've created another monster summoned from the very bowels of hell, formed in a vile carboy filled with a horrid mound of Naga Jalokia chilies steeped in grain vodka. It's packaged in a handsome heavy glass bottle with industrial grade sealing wire and lead security seal with a skull and crossbones embossed on it. To get to this bottle, you'll literally have to open it with wire cutters, but we strongly recommend that you don't. In fact, this unspeakable quarter of a million Scoville's vodka is a chilli vodka so horrendous we suggest you don't even purchase it. Please just shut down your computer and have a nice cup of tea instead. Try to forget what you saw. I did have a nice cup of tea while I was reading this, but I continued reading. So the tasting notes from um, from the Master of Mal are Nose. It smells like the devil's tears with a side of Agent Orange mixed with pepper spray. Uh, the note here says, oh, Ben, God. Ben, please don't make me drink this. Can't we just guess how it tastes? It just seems wholly unnecessary to drink it. Palette. Oh, it's not so bad. No, it's fine, really. Oh, actually, it's quite hot. Wait a second. Oh, what have you done? <laughs> Lots of vowels continue. Finish. There's just an editor's note. It says he slipped from his chair and is now rocking back and forth maniacally under his chair, holding his computer mouse for comfort. The DHL delivery man saw this and ran out screaming. Overall, <laughs> editor's note, he's been shivering in terror for over an hour now, chanting the words Liberate Tutamai over and over. Again, the devil does some Latin. Um, that is a reference, uh, actually, in case you don't know, to the 1997 movie Event Horizon. Uh, Liberate Tutamai means save yourself from hell. <laughs> Event Horizon. <laughs> Okay, are you ready for some user reviews of this horrendous sounding chili vodka? I am never been more ready. Okay, I think I've picked out about six, but there were many <laughs> that I could have chosen. Here we go. A friend sent me a bottle of this. Two quick nips. Yeah, that's just like a hot curry to the mouth that I so enjoy. No worries, I think. Ten minutes later, I'm on the floor of the toilet, praying to the porcelain gods to let it end as the stomach turns into a ball of lava that is trying to break its way out of you like an alien from the the crew of the USCSS Nostromo. Perhaps trying this on an empty stomach was a bad, bad idea. Giving it five stars for the utterly wicked way this thing hits you. (laughs) Oh, God. Next one. Do handle with care. I did collapse after a shot of this, and although only lasted <laughs> only lasted for five or ten minutes, I did feel very ill. Was good after all that passed, though. How was I that love good? the contrasts. The contrasts in these reviews are perfect. Here's the next one. My husband loves this. First time he took a shot, ended up throwing up the content of his dinner. He now has a smidge in a highball glass with loads of coke and ice. Bottle lasts him a year, much cheaper than buying whiskey, which you can consume before Christmas is over. <laughs> she clearly Next hates one. her husband. <laughs> yep. Uh, my personal hell. So I tried a shot of this. I ended up on the floor for about 15, 20 minutes, unable to do anything but curl up and wish I was dead. I believe some dry retching may have ensued at some point. It's hard to say. I went into an almost catatonic state of panic and fire. It's a blur. Good for parties. <laughs> <laughs> 
Another? Yes, please. Take my advice. Heed it well and stick to it. Do not try and eyeball your vodka with this stuff. Oh my gosh. <laughs> this is from <laughs> this is from a bloke who now feels stupid, has to wear an eye patch for two months, keeps bumping into things, <laughs> and at my age should really have known better. On the plus side, it tastes great when you use your loaf and drink sensibly with a mixer. Oh god. <laughs> One more. <laughs> uh, okay. Can you top that? I enjoyed drinking it and was burning for a good 10 minutes or so. As I woke up the next day, I need the toilet. And as it is a liquid, I thought it would come out my front end and be over in like 30 seconds. Nope, it came out the bottom end. As I went to poop, (laughs) hell unleashed on my ass for a good hour. Even after all that, I would buy more if we ran out. It's a lot of fun, just hurts a bit. (laughs) (laughs) So, um... Tempted? Oh, I'm tempted to give it to somebody, not to drink it myself. <laughs> if you ever try to give that to me, <laughs> and, and don't tell me, that will be the end of you. <laughs> <laughs> so mm. I'm not going to put that one on the list, no? I don't think so. Um, all right, so that was a really silly one to kick things off. I've got a couple of things <laughs> that are not quite so silly, but I hope they're not too depressing either. We'll see. <laughs> um, so talking about fire drinks, I th- I wanted to kind of know about a bit more about fire water. I didn't really know exactly what it was, but I knew the term fire water related to drink and I thought it was Native American. So I looked it up. So whereas in Europe you find euphemisms for alcohol referring to water a lot, so like vodka meaning little water, or aqua vitae for whiskey meaning water of life. For Native Americans, it's been associated with fire water, which is coming from the Algonquin and Siouan languages, for example, particularly when referring to whiskey. Um, But this has given rise to a fire water myth, I think we would call it. So after European contact, white drunkenness was often interpreted by other white people as the misbehavior of an individual. If you were drunk, it was your own fault. But native drunkenness was interpreted in terms of the inferiority of their race. So what emerged from that was a set of beliefs known as firewater myths that misrepresents the history and nature and sources and potential solutions to uh, native alcohol problems. So these myths, which still are prevalent, claim that uh, Native Americans have an inborn insatiable appetite for alcohol, that they are hypersensitive to alcohol, so they cannot hold their booze, Um, they are inordinately vulnerable to addiction to alcohol, they are more prone to violence when intoxicated, Um, they they, uh, produced an immediate devastating effect when alcohol was introduced to Native tribes by European contact and that the solutions to their problems lie in resources outside of their communities. So these are some some myths that they have kind of particular inherent kind of uh, challenges that are biological that affect them more. Have you ever heard of those? I mean, I know we're not, you know, American citizens, so we might not have heard them as much, but I had, did you? I mean, I am fully aware of being white girl wasted, 
Right, that's not the conversation we were having at all, but good. <laughs> um, so these these firewater myths portray Native Americans as genetically inferior. But there is science, that goodness there is science, um, that has refuted those claims to all of those myths um, by looking at the variability of alcohol problems across and within Native tribes and the very different responses that um, individuals have to alcohol as opposed to others. So uh, there was another important way that... Um, scientific literature refuted the myths by identifying that there are no known genetic or biological anomalies that render native people particularly vulnerable to alcoholism. There's a one study which um, suggested that they were actually less likely to report subjective feelings of drunkenness, although like biologically it had made no difference. So belief in the firewater myths is prevalent among even Native American youth and many of the adults. And what that means is it leads to a, a greater frequency and intensity of alcohol use. And some of those beliefs um, also mean that they then don't seek treatment for alcoholism due to a lack of confidence in their own ability to recover from it. So it becomes this vicious cycle whereby they're told they're more likely to have problems with it. And so they don't seek out help because they don't think it will be available. The only thing that we know that... Um, is uh, for Native Americans that's more likely to make them uh, victims of um, alcohol abuse is the fact that they've suffered trauma and social isolation. There are lots of studies on that, lots of really sad studies on rats that maybe I won't tell you about because I think it will make you too sad. Um, yeah, when they not. put when they put mammals in social isolation, they're much more likely to turn to um, substance abuse of, of various kinds. So. When this, this idea that it was something inherent in them and biological is completely false, the reason that it became such a problem when white settlers came over is because they were traumatised by displacement, um, you know, and um, inheritable trauma and all that sort of stuff. And that's the reason why you might see higher prevalences in certain communities, but not all of them, and it is variable. So there, I don't know what I was expecting to find when I went to research firewall, so I thought maybe there was something historical in Native American culture that I might find interesting, but actually that was the most important thing I read about it, so I thought I'm going to say it anyway. Okay, I enjoyed that. It wasn't too depressing, I'm glad you didn't turn okay. into rats. No, 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 <laughs> no I'm going to take about that one. <laughs> Another day. Nobody wants that. Uh, can I chat to you about some drinks? Mm-hmm. Uh, I took the time to read into the history of flaming drinks. Ooh. So, drinks what you set on fire. Okay. Um, so, we've probably all had a flaming sambuca in our time. Or sure. a fancy cocktail, whatnot. It's got a bit of mm -hmm. pizzazz to it. Um... So, yeah, why do we set fire to stuff other than it being a bit of fun? <laughs> um, so, it's mainly for the drama. It looks cool. It delights people when the bartenders do it. Um, but flavours of drinks can be altered, enhanced by doing it as well. So, um, I looked back into the history of flaming drinks. So, as you know, alcohol was used as a fuel for fire for a very, very long time. But when it became a kind of thing for drinks, when we started to light fire to it and then consume it, it's a bit 
uncertain when exactly that happened. Um, but it's somewhere, it's a very, very broad date line, but it's somewhere between the 1600s and the 1860s. <laughs> um, sure. <laughs> so in the 1800s, um, a typical saloon would serve basic spirits. Um, sugar might be added to sweeten them. Uh, but it was in 1862 the first flaming um, cocktail recipe was actually written down. It's called the Blue Blazer. And in written text, um, they describe how to turn a hot toddy made with scotch into a blazing stream of liquid fire. Uh, So to do that, the bartender would use two silver-plated mugs. They'd have to have handles on. You'd have a wine glass of scotch, which you'd pour into the mug, and then you'd top that up with some boiling water. You'd ignite them and then mix them between the two mugs, obviously trying to Ah, get the mugs as far apart from each other as they can to create this fantastic line of fire between the two. Um, Advice back then was to practice with cold water and mugs just to get used to the movement before actually going half a leather with some whiskey boiling water and fire. So just... The science behind it all, 40% proof alcohol will ignite. But for a nice steady flame, you want pretty much 50% proof. Mm-hmm. Uh, moving on from the cocktail recipe in 1862, the next kind of notable era of setting fire to drinks uh, takes us back to one of our previous podcasts, and it was the rise of tiki bars and tiki drinks. Right, yeah. So the 1940s and 50s, um, I think one of the most popular ones, there's, again, is uncertainty around which one was the first one that they set fire to. Um, but volcano bowls were quite a popular mm-hmm. drink of choice then. And we, we still do it now, those big shared drinks where you pour the booze in the middle, set fire to that, and it's a big hoo-ha. But I wanted to look into the different techniques that are used from pretty much back then up into the modern day for this kind of new appreciation of flair bartending, where you have the bartenders doing as much as they can to delight people when they serve their drinks. So you've got the most common ones that we've probably all seen. Um, So citrus fruits, they contain an oil that's flammable so they're a great way for bartenders to try and get some flames going well not so much flames nice sparkles if you just basically Mm -hmm. cut some peel off a citrus fruit squeeze it above a flame you get nice sparkles as the oils spurt out of the peel if you want something (laughs) if you want something a little bit more bold and bigger you can grate cinnamon over the top of the flame that creates a nice big mm. spark as well uh one of the more off, like common things that you'll see and this dates back to the tiki days um flaming fruit shells so a hollowed out could be anything passion fruit citrus fruit whatever you'd cut it in half hollow it out fill that with your booze set fire to that and sit it on top of the drink that's often got a sugar cube in it as well. That will act as a wick for a better flame, but add some weight to it so it doesn't fall into the glass. Uh, and you can eat the caramelised sugar as well when it's uh, 
cooled down. Um, absinthe is another fun way of adding some flames to your drinks. So again, in a previous podcast, we talked about the louche, mm-hmm. where you drip water over the sugar cube and into the absinthe. But there is another technique in some of the bohemian bars um, that they would dip the sugar cube in the absinthe, light that, and then caramelized sugar would drip into the absinthe. That became a bit more popular in the 1990s. And the reason why, it was to distract from the fact that a lot of French absinthe at the time wasn't really absinthe. It was just overproof vodka that had been flavoured. So... Mm-hmm. They distract you with the fire. There have been um, so many throwbacks. This, this, sorry, I know. It, it, like this I episode and the last one, we've had loads. It's almost like we've learnt a lot. Yes. <laughs> so it far, was really there's interesting. so many throwbacks. But yeah, the absinthe thing. I mean, I, I remember that like proper absinthe wasn't sold until the early 21st century again. So all that mm-hmm. old stuff was just like weird flavored things. Yeah. Exactly. Cool. Um. I also found two uh, two other techniques that I used that are a lot more modern day. Uh, they were both by um, bartenders from New York who are very innovative and just they're all over YouTube and social media for their flaring. And some of the tips they shared, they said if you were to smoke, um, smoke, soak, soak a small cube of bread in a high proof lemon extract and then ignite that, that gives you a nice tall yellow flame. So that's a very dramatic way to add some flair to your drinks. And then there's another guy in uh, New York who uses red hot pokers to ignite his drinks. Mm. So red hot pokers were a really, really ancient method of um, changing flavours to drinks already. They used them in taverns hundreds of years ago so they'd either use the pokers or they'd add rocks to the drinks um so he'd obviously taken inspiration from that and he was using red hot pokers to just put them into the drinks stir them around and instantly they just burst into flames which obviously looked really cool behind the bar but he goes on quite nicely to explain that um unlike a lot of drinks you just kind of add a thin layer of alcohol to the top or the garnish to add the flair. He said, this is one that's not just about the drama. It completely changes the drink. He said all those ingredients that are in the cocktail almost kind of merge into one now and they become a really nice roasted burnt. He said it's like baking a pie, essentially. It just kind of changes it completely for the better. Um... I didn't write the name. I did write the name of his bar. So I was really sad because I got fully invested in this guy. And I was like, oh, my God, I want to go to this bar. And I found the bar that he worked in and it was called Existing Conditions. And I went onto their website and I was heartbroken to find that they'd put um, a disclaimer up. Must be recently to say that due to the pandemic, they just have to close and it was a heartbreaking decision so unfortunately his bar is no more but i'm sure oh. he'll pop up somewhere and serve some drinks so sure uh, speaking of drinks mm-hmm. i'm going to talk about some popular ones because we all know about flaming sambucas etc etc so i just thought i'd talk about a few others sure um so the flaming b52 so b52 is a shot that we've 
probably heard of, but not sure what's in it. Um, so it's a layer of coffee liqueur at the bottom. And then the largest layer is a uh, Irish cream, so Bailey's essentially. And then it's topped with a triple sec or Cointreau. And then a light that tip from the bartender is to fill it right to the top because it gives less glass at the top when you ignite it to get too hot and smash. Mm-hmm. Um, also, triple sec at room temperature doesn't ignite well. So another top tip from the bartenders is to either warm the triple sec or if you're feeling particularly wacky, you can add a small layer of overproof rum to the top instead. And it has to be about 65 to 85% rum. Uh, if you do opt for that, it is called a B-52 on a mission. <laughs> um, another recurring name that kept popping up when I was looking for flaming drinks was the Flaming Dr. Pepper. Uh, despite the name, it contains no Dr. Pepper. Dr. Pepper oh, is just purely there because it tastes like it. <laughs> right. Um, it's very simple. Get a shot glass. You put three part amaretto, one part of a high proof um, liqueur at the top. Uh, any one of your choice, it would seem. Uh, you ignite the high proof liqueur at the top and then drop it into a half pint of beer. And they're also Ooh. very specific that it has to be drunk quickly. So chin it. Right. Um, again, uncertain as to the whereabouts of who founded it and where. There are two <clears throat> names that kept popping up. Texas, which is the home of Dr. Pepper. And Louisiana, where all the bars claim they invented it. So nobody knows, but I can tell you that it is apparently the Flaming Dr. Pepper that inspired the famous drink of the Simpsons, the Flaming Mole. <gasps> oh, well, unbeknownst to you, I was actually <laughs> going go. to talk about the fl- <laughs> I mean, cue Mythbusters jingle. Mythbusted. Mythbusted. Um, I'm actually going to talk about that in a bit, so I might make that the denouement now of uh, of this episode. We'll see. I need to get you a bullshit button. <laughs> hey, if you can prove my bullshit, you're welcome to bang that button. In the meantime, it's the Mythbusters jingle. <laughs> I have uh, okay, three fine. things to pick up on. I think from your section. One. I'm okay. wondering. I've if, got one more I... drink to talk about, but I'll take oh. I'll take some questions. <laughs> all right, no, it's not it's not a question. They're all comments. Um, one is I'm wondering <laughs> whether I can smoke bread. Mm-hmm. You mentioned you inadvertently mentioned smoking bread, and I was like, I want to smoke bread. Um, two, when I come over to your house in the winter, I want okay. to lie in a bubble bath, and I want you to grate cinnamon over a candle. Okay, I can do that. Okay, great. Those were the two main things. Uh, the other was just that I had a memory when you were talking about, oh, everyone's some flaming Sambuca. I had a mem- flash memory of uh, being in university um, and a friend of mine who decided that the best way to put out a flaming Sambuca was to pour it over her boobs. <gasps> and um, oh, no. let's just say it didn't work. And oh, she had dear. tits flambe. Um, so it's Blay, which was very funny, but she 
did get like proper burns from it and had to take a week <laughs> off in bed, creaming her, oh my God. creaming her burned boobs. She was fine. She recovered. No long-lasting scars. But the message was: don't don't pour flaming alcohol on your breasts. Okay, I'll, I'll put that in my uh, in my mind for f- future reference. Yeah. Okay, so not really questions. Great, just great, uh, great name for a drag queen: tits flambe. Tits flambe. <laughs> yeah. Season four. I've just uh, I've just had a flashback actually of. I don't quite know what the technique was, but there were flaming sambucas, and then all of a sudden there was like a straw being used to slurp some fumes. Ah, uh, you're to- you're talking about, and I really don't like this term, but it is common, so I will say it, gas chamber. Okay. So this is this is where you put like a brand a large brandy glass over the top of a flaming sambuca so that it extinguishes mm-hmm. the flame but the alcohol fumes go up into the glass and then you get a straw right. and you you a bendy straw and you hold like the long end in your mouth and the short end curves under into the glass then you're supposed to suck the alcohol fumes out of the the brandy glass and that's why it's called yes. the gas chamber grim yeah i'd be lying I'm if i said i hadn't done that last drink i mean do you know I where i did do you know that. where i did that cardiff so I'm blaming you. Even this is, even though this is about a decade before I met you, I'm blaming you. <laughs> I, I, I'm not surprised. Yeah. I'm not surprised. I probably did it in some workmen's club somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> um, Sorry, I interrupted you before your finale. Continue. <laughs> it's fine. It's going to be a really anticlimax now. Oh, okay. uh, the last drink I've got to chat about is the zombie. At this point, um, editor's note, Illyri does talk about the zombie quite a lot, forgetting that we did it in detail last Halloween. So I'm just going to skip over those few minutes and we're going to pick up on the other side. I mean, we've, we've literally said every aspect of that before. <laughs> I, was wait- I was waiting for the fire part. <laughs> uh, no, I'm just saying it. The zombie, sorry, I, I, I was... I was going to say right at the end that the zombie is the most popular um, (laughs) cocktail that has the flaming shells that I spoke about. (laughs) Right. Yes. Sorry. That's the whole point of it. For a moment, I I, I thought you'd completely forgotten everything we've ever done. Um... (laughs) We've done a lot. But no, the reason I wanted to talk about the zombie was not to bring up all of that again. It was to say that the zombie is the most popular recipient of a flaming shell. Sure, great. (laughs) Told you it would be anticlimactic. Yeah, it really was. I should have saved my uh, points for the end, shouldn't I? (laughs) Tits flambe was the climax. I should have moved on from that. Yeah. Um, Thank you. I enjoyed that regardless. (laughs) All right. Regardless um, of how shitty we're. <laughs> regardless of how badly put together that was. Um, so, <laughs> Pete. <laughs> Who is Pete? What is Pete? Why is Pete? I know a Pete called... Uh, I'm sorry, a sheep called Pete. Do you? Tell me about a sheep called Pete. Uh, it's... Um, so my auntie used to work in like an animal sanctuary. And there was a really old cranky sheep there called Pete. And every time she'd pull up in the car park in the morning, she'd say, Morning, Pete. And he'd just go, And that's Pete the sheep. (laughs) 
You see, that was better than the stuff you told us about the zombie. <laughs> yeah, I should have just gone straight to that Pete the Sheep and sat the zombie straight. off. Lesson learned, lesson learned. All right, so Pete, <laughs> we're heading into the world of whiskey. Um, and let's consider this like a little teaser for a time when we properly do Scottish whiskey. But um, in brewing, malting makes um, the starches within barley corn soluble so that the sugars can be converted into alcohol. That's the science bit, right? So, in other words, malting tricks barley corns into thinking that spring has arrived. Barley corns are then steeped in water and they're allowed to germinate before that process is then halted in the kiln. Now, for a long time, peat was the most readily accessible fuel in many areas of Scotland. I'm not talking about peat the sheep. Uh, this is the accumulation of water in boggy areas, which slows down the decomposition of plant materials like moss and grass and tree roots, and that then leads to the creation of peat. So peat accumulates extremely slowly, and bogs are often thousands of years old, which leads to peat being essentially a fossil fuel, right? So peat is a boggy fossil fuel. When peat is then burned in the kiln, it produces um, an especially aromatic smoke. And that smoke has a lot of influence on the malt while it's being kilned. Um, And that um, imbues it with compounds that we call phenols. And phenols will have typical aromas like tar, ash, iodine, and smoke. So I even remember back in the um, Bibenders episode when I said um, rubber, you know, like uh, rubber and tar and, and stuff is the relevant drink that I'm going to have, so I'm going to have a whiskey. And you were like, that's that's not a thing. But it was. It was the rubber <laughs> phenols from Peated Whiskey. Um, so um, these, uh, these kind of smoky phenols are especially true of the remote Highland and Island distillers. Um, and but then later on you get the introduction of coal and by continuation of that coke um, not coca-cola coke as in the fossil fuel um, <laughs> the fossil lowlands drug. and yeah not yet yeah, not that either um, <laughs> the lowlands and speyside were the first to convert to coke and what made that easy is the development of the rail transport in scotland made coke widely available Coke burns more evenly and more consistently and with a lot less smoke than peat does. So these regions in the Lowlands and Speyside were the first ones to kind of realise the potential of unpeated whisky. But many of the Highland and Island distillers still maintain that tradition of peated whisky. And it's now largely this unique style with has lots of variation, lots of flavour... The ones you might have heard of would, for example, be Lefroig on Isla, Highland Park in Orkney, or Balveni in Speyside. Um, it's not just Scotland. India, Japan, New Zealand all have peated whiskies of their own as well. Many countries have peatland that is either used um, for other purposes or it's preserved. So it's not necessarily a uniquely Scottish thing, but it is where we most associate it. I say they've preserved it rather than used it because the peatland ecosystem covers 3.7 million square kilometres 
and it is the most efficient carbon sink on the planet. So it's really important for climate change that not only are these protected, the peatlands, but they're actively restored, which might make you think twice about reaching for a peated whiskey in future, I hate to say. Um, we'll cover this more specifically, all the different kind of types of Scottish whisky on a future episode. But I just wanted to let you know where the, the fiery, smoky peatiness kind of came into it. And I think that will give us a good start. I did actually read about whiskies in my research as well. Ooh, hit me. Um, I just looked at some um, whiskies that were inspired by fire or smoke you know staying with the theme sure. uh, and I found four interesting sounding ones uh, the first one was from Johnny Walker another throwback with them actually because I remembered we talked about them in the Mummy Juice episode I think they mm-hmm. had launched the Jane Walker whiskey on International Women's Day right yes anyway um, they appear to love a gimmicky whiskey because they have also released some game of thrones um themed whiskey uh one is a song of ice and the other is a song of fire um. uh, so a song of fire whiskey is inspired by the dragons of the house of targaryen uh, it's rich and spicy with subtle hints of smoke uh, so it's all a bit gimmicky but i really enjoyed um one of the suggested cocktails on their websites to make with it and it's called the Flame of Truth. Uh, so it involves sugar syrup, orange bitters. That's about it. You just put that in a mixing glass with some ice and obviously the whiskey. Stir that up and strain it over ice. You then garnish it with some freshly burnt sage that's still smoking, which I really like the idea of. Hmm. That's basically um, that's basically an old fashioned, but with yeah. added added burnt sage and orange bitter rather mm. than generic bitter. Sounds nice. I just love the smell of burnt sage. So. Yeah, it's good, isn't it? And also, despite, burning um, burning sage is supposed to uh, dispel evil spirits, right? Well, I can't remember if I spoke about this on the podcast, but I went for a sound bath not long ago. I don't think you did. Mm. So, um, it's by a, a, a woman... A local woman who does lots of yoga and medicinal, um, not medicinal, natural health practices. She invited me to a sound bath um, and it was in a church. The acoustics were amazing. You basically just lie on the floor for an hour while this guy who, like, if you Google search wizard and the images you expect to see on Google search, that's exactly what he looked like. He was just like a wizard stood in this church with various gongs and drums and wind chimes and all kinds of noisemakers. And we were just instructed to lie on the floor, get comfy, close our eyes and just not analyse the sounds, but let the sounds wash over us. And that's what I did. But before we got there, um, she had um, cleansed the room by burning sage. So the room smelled like burnt sage, which was delightful. Maybe... Maybe she'd just been necking a load of these cocktails. She was a she very just told you. She was like, oh, I cleansed it with burnt sage. She'd actually had loads of those instead. <laughs> Maybe. Don't blame her. 
the second whiskey on my list it's not that interesting but I felt like it just needed to be mentioned um, Fireball Whiskey it was the first thing that popped into my head when I knew I was going to even include this section um, and I just feel like it's just one of those timeless things the label I feel hasn't changed ever you see it in bars it's there all the time it's that kind of red and orange slash yellow it's a yellow background with a ready orange kind of border around it and like a dragon on it mm-hmm. fireball whiskey um so it's from canada which i didn't know um it's made of canadian whiskey with cinnamon it was found in the 1980s their marketing story is that it was founded by a bartender who was trying to warm up from an arctic blast um and it's had its own little kind of i don't know what the word is it's it's just keeps coming back <laughs> although it's never gone away it keeps having its own little surges in mm-hmm. in bars re- and re- on regeneration media. like doctor who yeah i mean they they said i think it was in the early 2000s they started doing social media and had a bit of a marketing budget behind it and then they saw a big surge and it actually overtook off the top of my head i can't remember the name but it was one of the big name brand whiskies it overtook them and then they overtook sales of jägermeister in the us as well so they're holding their own fireball whiskey um the third on my list is fire and cane whiskey which is from glenfiddich 43 percent uh, a peat whiskey soz environment um so the peated whiskey is matured um the malts are matured in bourbon barrels they are then finished in latin rum casks devil will be happy with that um and that process gives it a nice campfire smokiness and toffee sweetness which apparently are delicious together and the last one on my list and i feel like it's a perfect full circle it's brimstone whiskey um, from a distillery in the u.s called balcones so balcones brimstone whiskey um it's quite an innovative um process that they use so it's a smoky corn whiskey um so rather than um smoking the grain they smoke the whiskey itself um they don't actually give any in insight into how they do that they're very secretive about it but they have said that they use sun-baked texas oak to smoke their whiskey and if you look on any ruse online people rave about it nice i like the first full circleness of it mm-hmm. um are you ready to hear the Mythbuster jingle i am play it myth busted and there it was um (laughs) so let's look i mean i couldn't do an episode on flaming drinks without talking about flaming mo um right i'll I'll do this uh as if everyone doesn't know this but flaming mo's is the 10th episode of the third season of the simpsons in this episode homer tells moses like about the flaming homer an alcoholic cocktail of cough medicine and fire that he invented Mo steals Homer's recipe, renames it the Flaming Mo, and sells it at his tavern. 
Um, the drink is very successful and boosts Mo's business, but Homer is angry at him for his betrayal and seeks revenge. So, um, one of the writers on that episode, Sam Simon, who's also like one of the main producers, had previously written for Cheers. And you know in that episode there's loads of Cheers references from, you know, the music to the um, sudden appearance of a character called Colette, um, who is a cipher for Diane. So uh, Sam Simon wrote all the dialogue for, for Colette because he knew it so well. Fact number one. Fact number two, uh, Aerosmith, the rock band, were the first band to make a guest appearance on The Simpsons and it was in this episode. Yeah. Um, also, in the original script, Mo tempted the band to play by offering them free beer. But Aerosmith asked that that joke be changed and the writers instead changed the line to free pickled eggs. <laughs> now, I know the line was probably requested to be changed for an image thing. Maybe they didn't like the idea of performing for free booze, but actually it's a much funnier line, so they were right. Um, I'd perform for free pickled anything. <laughs> you would do anything for pickled anything. <laughs> I'm going to put that on my LinkedIn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, there was originally a joke in this episode in which a gay couple walked into Flaming Moe's assuming that it was a gay bar because of the name, but it was cut from the final version. Aww. Boo. <sighs> Boo, right? I mean, they actually they didn't have a really good track record for, record for about the first 20 years, The Simpsons, you know, they portrayed gay characters. But nevertheless, that would have been a good one. Um, so while the story of this episode is largely inspired by the film Cocktail, the drink itself, I think, has other roots. And I'm not convinced it's the Flaming Dr. Pepper. Do you want to hear my theory? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> That was a big no in terms of facial expressions, folks. Um, so here's another drink. It's called Lean, but it was also known as Purple Drank. Um, and Drank is in D-R-A-N-K, Drank. Um, mm-hmm. And several other names as well. It's a recreational drug beverage uh, prepared by mixing prescription-grade cough syrup with a soft drink. So the term lean, first of all, refers to users' propensity for having difficulty in standing up straight, but purple drank references its typically purple hue at the time. And if you remember, the cough syrup that they use in the Flaming Moe is purple, and it makes the Flaming Moe purple. Lean is thought to have developed in Houston, Texas, around the 1960s when blues musicians would take Robitussin and cut it with beer. And then later, when wine coolers came onto the market, wine coolers like wine and fruit juice, they substituted that for the beer instead. So it became more of a cocktail with cough syrup and fruit juices and wine. Um, There are, to be fair to you, no references to lean or purple drank being set on fire. But when you mentioned that... The Flaming Dr. Pepper comes possibly from Texas and that the Lean and Purple Drank also comes from Texas. I wonder if it's a hybrid of those experiences of kind of the cough syrup cocktail and the Flaming Dr. Pepper all kind of being wrapped into a Flaming Mo. Does that mean it's a draw? I think that means it's a draw. (laughs) Okay, I'll take that. A rare concession of compromise from us. (laughs) 
Hmm. <laughs> well, this girl's been on fire. Anything else to add? Uh, I've had enough to drink to say my pussy's on fire. <laughs> Great. Good. Let's remind people that we've done two episodes back to back. It's a wonder that we're we're making any sense at all. And so our drinks have run dry, which means it's time to burn this shit down like carry on prom nights. Cheers, everybody! <laughs> Cheers! I love carrot. Wherever I may roam, on land or sea or home, you can always hear me singing this song. Show me the way to go home. I can see your dirty pillows.